Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So I haven't done one of these kinds of episodes in a while, and just to go ahead and be upfront, this is probably going to be a little bit long and a little bit rambly and maybe about a topic that you don't particularly care about. So if you don't, that's fine. You can go ahead and just exit out of this now and we will meet up again next week when it's time to do the weekly roundup. But I wanted to talk about this because it's kind of where I left off on the last episode and talking about the whole New York Times, Tom Cotton op-ed foolishness and things have just gotten really weird in the media space since that. I mean, and not that things weren't weird before, but I mean, as I'm recording this, there's probably somebody right now in media losing their job over something that nobody can really actually identify what they did wrong, but they're going to lose their job over it. And it's just, like I said, it's it's gotten really weird over the past week or so, and things have accelerated at a rather frightening rate and are going in a direction that's a little scary, to be completely frank, but... Ever since the whole New York Times situation, there has been lots of thought pieces coming out of various media outlets talking about what the role is of media and journalists in our current situation slash environment slash era of Trump, which I mean, we're we're already, what, three and a half-ish years in, like if you haven't figured it out by now, I don't know what you're going to figure out between now and January, hopefully, if he loses. I, I'm that That's a whole nother ball of wax there. But yeah, it's just there, there's been a lot coming out that's a little frightening because the conversation right now is this discussion of trying to parse out what should and should not be acceptable for a publication to publish or for a platform to have on their platform and being phrased in this way of setting boundaries and setting like moral boundaries and considering what is decent to put on your platform or not. Yeah, that's a little squicky because here's the first problem. Like if you want to start looking at this in a way of say, just, just staying with the Tom Cotton op-ed, for example, if you want to make the argument that the New York times should not have run that op-ed because the ideas in it are outside the bounds of what should be any kind of permissible thought. Um, No, see, that's not okay. Because here's the thing. I don't think there are that many people, well, depending on how you want to look at this, and there there was a study going around that says 58% of people would support sending the military in to try to kind of subdued the rioting and looting situation, but there's some questions about how that that particular like poll question was phrased and what people were actually agreeing to. Anyway, setting all that aside, it's not that when an outlet runs a piece, especially an op-ed piece, it's not saying that they endorse the ideas in the piece, but just that 
here is this piece by somebody, and this particular somebody happens to be a sitting senator. And this is also a particular someone who, by the way, as it comes out, the New York Times actually asked him to write this op-ed. He did not pitch the New York Times. The New York Times pitched him. So I still stand by my original assessment that this whole piece was just clickbait gone wrong. And there's a whole conversation to be had there about the incentive structure for publications right now as to what they pick and choose to run and what they do not pick and choose to run. But back to the point, it's not saying that the New York Times condoned anything that Cotton said. It's just that here is this op-ed. This is an idea that some people agree with. Here you go. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. That's kind of the whole point of an opinion section in a paper is that it's people's opinions. And this idea that there are opinions that should not be platformed because they are outside the bounds of what would be considered acceptable. You're getting into some very, very murky territory, and especially when you start kind of going along this lines of, well, we need to think about from like a morality perspective or a decency perspective what we should and should not platform well, whose morality are you using and whose sense of decency are you using? (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's not going to be mine or yours or really anybody's to be specific, but it will be this very nebulous idea where it will be used to shoot down various sorts of things, not necessarily because they are harmful or dangerous or whatever, because I mean, it's it's a piece in a paper, people. Come the fuck on. If you don't like it, just keep it moving. If anything, write a rebuttal to it. But this whole idea that some ideas are just too dangerous to have out there is just, it's going to be used in ways that you're not going to like, and it's not going to be pleasant, and it will be used against your side. I don't even know why anybody would think that it's acceptable to parse this conversation in those sorts of words. But As I was reading all these thought pieces and thinking about the Tom Cotton piece, I was reminded of a piece that I actually disliked so much that I read the book that was spawned by the piece and destroyed it in its own episode on this podcast. If you've been here for a while, you probably remember when I did the book review on how women had better sex under socialism. That book originated from an essay printed in the New York Times in the op-ed section of roughly the same title. And there was a couple of them around that particular moment in time. I want to say at this point, it was probably, God, a year and a half ago, maybe. I mean, time is a flat circle. I have no idea when anything actually took place anymore, but... There was that, there was like a little bumper crop of like two or three different essays talking about how women's lives were better under socialism. And thinking about that, I could make an argument that those pieces are outside the bounds of what should be considered acceptable thought and that those are, from a morality or decency perspective, offensive. Like it's, to me, it's very offensive to gloss over the things that women had to endure under socialism, under communism, to try to make some dumbass fucking point that has no basis in reality. I I, I find that offensive. 
I find that morally offensive. I find that indecent. But I would never in a million years say that the New York Times shouldn't publish it or that they should pull the piece altogether or that they should write some long ass retraction to put at the front of the piece. I did what every rational person should do in that situation. I created a rebuttal. And that's what you should do. That's what everybody should do. That is the answer to when you see something that you think is unacceptable or you think it's incorrect on whatever level, you don't ask for that opinion to be made outside of the bounds of what is acceptable. You create a rebuttal to that. Like just asking for something to be poofed away to me is lazy. Like it's lazy. You don't want to do the work of actually refuting somebody else's argument. You just want it to go away. And that's bullshit. Like, honestly, if your job is to write pieces, then write a piece about the thing that you disagree with. Like, there you go. That's your whole job. It's what you get paid for. Like, I don't I don't understand the idea of just wanting certain ideas to disappear just because you don't like them. And I do not like Tom Cotton. I do not like his op-ed. I think it is stupid and dumb. And quite frankly, deploying the U.S. military within the U.S. is a horrific idea, probably illegal, depending on who you ask. And it's just a stupid fucking idea altogether. But it's his idea. You get to have it. If the New York Times wants to publish it, that's their business. And that's it. Like, I don't understand having anything deeper than that, other than just actually rebutting the piece. And to the point of rebutting the piece, there have been calls to fact check the piece. And my first, my kind of my first reaction is, how do you fact check an opinion piece? It's an opinion piece. It's not straight news. It's not reporting on something that is like the news. It's an opinion piece. And I think perhaps when people are saying fact check, they're kind of being a little imprecise in their speaking. I think what they're asking for is for there to be some kind of editing process where like there were some factual inaccuracies in Tom Cotton's original piece. But I mean, I don't know what you're supposed to do with that in an op-ed. Like, I'm not I'm not sure how you're supposed to fact check somebody's opinion. Like, like people have pointed out that he had said that a lot of the rioting and looting was tied to Antifa. And so far, that seems to be factually inaccurate. Again, I mean, just say that it's factually inaccurate. Like, I don't I don't I don't get it. Like, it's just it's such a weird place to be in. And some of the verbiage that's being used is just like. Did you really think that through before you said it? Because you sound really fucking creepy right now. But that that has spawned a larger conversation, sort of, where you now have people navel-gazing about the role of journalism and the role of journalists right now. And... Particularly, everybody is kind of up in arms about the Margaret Sullivan piece in the Washington Post, which I would link in the show notes, but it's paywalled. If you know a way around a paywall, go for it. If you have a subscription to Washington Post, go for it. Um, Basically, it's this whole op-ed about 
what the role of a journalist should be and what 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 like what is the job description of a journalist which to answer it's the same job description that it was last week and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that going back hundreds of years like the definition of a journalist and the role of a journalist hasn't changed and it doesn't change because we're in this kind of weird, messed up situation right now. Like your role is still the same. Your job is still the same. Your job description didn't change. Your job is to report on the news if you are doing straight journalism, or it is your job to write opinion pieces if that is what you do. You write about your opinions on things, or you do podcasts, or you do whatever it is you do. Anyway, it's not changed. I don't understand the question at the heart of her essay. I mean, other than you're asking a question that you really don't want answered, but you want to kind of craft an answer to make your job something different than what it is supposed to be. Like you want there to be a shift in opinion. And so you're kind of phrasing this in this way of pretending like you're asking a question that is a stupid question because it's easily answerable, but that's not really what you're trying to do. And to me, kind of the most controversial part of the essay is Sullivan making the argument that what journalists should be doing with their time and their energies is promoting stories and writing and presenting things that serve the real interest of American citizens, which again, what are those? Who's, who's interest? What, what American citizens? I mean, I, I <laughs> again, and if this sounds a little familiar to some of the rhetoric that comes out of the more nationalist circles about American citizens being like this writ large thing that like everybody kind of understands and that like there's a whole baseline here and that invoking that kind of idea of solidarity and of serving the interest of the real American citizens, you're not far off because I noticed that too. And to that, my answer is still the same. Like what, what, what? What do you mean? I don't get it. Like you keep invoking these ideas that are never thoroughly explained and it's just kind of out there in the ether that everybody's supposed to understand like what the real interests of American citizens are. Like, um, I don't know. I think the real interest of people who live in Atlanta is different than the people who live in New York City, than of who live in LA, than who live in Chicago, than of who live in Wichita, than who live out in the middle of the Arizona desert. Like what? It's, it's just this weird overarching assumption, I guess. And, and that might be being a little too charitable that there is such a thing as a universal national interest that we all share and that somebody should be catering to. Like, it, just, it makes no sense to me. And, and like I said, again, Who's, who is going to make these decisions of what are the things of real interest to American citizens? I don't know. I, I imagine your interest might be completely different from mine. Maybe you want to read about things that I don't particularly care about and vice versa. 
I just, I, it's it's the weirdest. Like I said, it's just a really weird moment where there there seems to be a lot of navel gazing about things that shouldn't really be navel gazed about because I thought we already understood all of this. Another argument that she sets up in the piece is making the assumption, again, making these weird overarching assumptions of what Americans want. She kind of parses this in the way of saying, well, if you held a poll asking Americans what they wanted in the news, you might get something along the lines of people saying that I just want somebody to just report the facts straight up and that's it. And even if I wanted to accept that premise, which I don't, I don't think that's what people want at all. And I will explain that in a second. Even if I were to accept that such a poll would exist and such a result would come of it, then the next question I'm going to have is, well, then you have a stated preference of the quote unquote American people for what they want in news, but then you have a demonstrated preference of what they want in the news. And let's keep it real. You can say all day that you just want somebody to just go on the news, on the TV or in the newspaper or online or wherever, and just dispense the news, just blip, there's the news, that's it, that's what you need to know. People like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow and Chris Cuomo and Brian Stelter and all of the other, all, all of these other people do not make millions of dollars by going on television and sitting there dispassionately and just reading you the news off of a teleprompter. What people seem to demonstrate what they want when they are looking for a news product is they like shouty people. They like people to shout at things and people and stuff, which is the opposite of wanting somebody to just sit there and read you the news. People seem to want personalities that confirm their biases, first of all, because usually when you're picking who you're getting your news from, you're more than likely choosing somebody who already aligns with your worldview and your kind of thoughts and opinions on things. And so you go to this person so that they can confirm what it is that you already think. So yeah, there's there's a little bit of a dichotomy there between what people are theoretically supposed to want and what people are actually demonstrating that they want and what is actually making money and who is actually making money. I mean, for, for all of the talk about, oh, we just want straight news. Um, there's been outlets that have tried that and have had very little success to no success. And so they go out of business because, I mean, this is a business. I mean, it's journalism does serve a larger societal function, but at the end of the day, it's a business. You have to make money. You have to be able to keep the lights on. You have to be able to pay people. You, I mean, it, it's a business. And they have to make money the same way everybody else does. So you cater to what people seem to want. And that seems to be loud, shouty people. And and you see it a lot in different different venues are different. Like TV is not the same as print, which is not the same as podcasting, which is not the same as doing YouTube. Different venues kind of reward different sorts of behaviors and activities, but across 
across all platforms, you see when people have critiques of a certain show or a certain person or a certain episode, there's always inevitably, especially when you have like interview episodes or stuff like that, there's always somebody that wants to ask, why didn't you go harder on this person about this thing or that thing? Or or why don't you talk about this? Or why why aren't you more angry about that? It's like, that is what's rewarded. That is what people are asking for. And the answer to that is usually that you're not a loud, shouty person. And so you're not going to be loud and shouty to your guests. Also, just a little side note, if you want to continue to have guests on your whatever, it's a good idea to not be a dick to those people. Because if you get a reputation of being somebody loud and shouty, you're going to have a hard time finding guests to come on your show and talk to you. Like, how many people really want to go on Tucker or Hannity? Like, people do it, but you, you already know what it's going to be. And you're just like, oh, my God, whatever. Like, like you don't even want to go. It's like you're, you're not going to have a decent conversation. And you know that nobody's there for you to have, like, some nuanced conversation with Tucker Carlson. You're there so Tucker Carlson can yell at you. Like, it's I, I, don't, I don't even understand people that watch this stuff. Like, I don't. I don't know. I, I would just imagine it gets old after a while, but apparently not because um, Tucker's making way more money than I am. So I don't know. But like I said, it's, it's a demonstrated preference that people don't really want the, the softer, more nuanced stuff. But then again, there's, there is a section of people who do, and I, I'll, I'll leave that point for a little while because I want to talk about some other things before I get to that point. But kind of branching off of the whole idea of people wanting the quote-unquote straight news given to them straight, there's also, I, I call it the cult of objectivity. And that's this idea that if you report on the news, especially if you're doing like straight news and not op-ed, that you have to be somebody who doesn't have opinions on anything in a public fashion. And first of all, that's impossible. Reporters are humans too. Talking heads are humans. You have thoughts and opinions on things. Like that's just, that's part of being a person who lives in the United States or anywhere in the world. Of course you have thoughts on current events. And of course you have thoughts on various controversies. It's like, well, yeah. And it's, kind of touches on something that a lot of people got mad about. Um, Axios decided that they would allow their reporters to go attend like George Floyd protests, which people, again, is is this whole cult of objectivity thing like, oh, well, if you go do that, then you're not objective anymore because obviously you're supporting the protesters. It's like, okay, fine. Like that's, does it really matter all that much? And that, that going back to that idea that if you have some sort of stated viewpoint, then all of a sudden you can't be a good journalist. I would counter that by saying that it is the journalists who do have a particular passion or a particular point of view about something that you do need in order to get the deep dive stories, because you have to be particularly passionate about a specific issue to do a 15,000 piece word piece on a topic. Like you have to feel a certain way about it. And so you need those people to do 
kind of that legwork and to spend months and months on one piece about this one topic because it's their thing and it's the thing that they're passionate about. And you know up front how they feel about the thing. And it's it's fine. It's perfectly fine. Like it's just, it's not this thing where you have to like write about a thing but pretend like you don't have an opinion about the thing. And and I don't even think in this day and age you could even get away with doing that because I mean everybody's on Twitter everybody's on social media it's how a lot of people in media actually get their jobs now like you you go tweet good and then eventually somebody lets you write pieces and then you get a job like that's how you do it now like I, I don't know how else you formally apply for like a staff writer job other than be good at Twitter so yeah people have opinions and I think that kind of gets twisted into this idea that if you have an opinion on something, that you necessarily have an agenda, which that is two different things. I think you can report on things in a rather neutral fashion and still feel a certain way about it, but people kind of twist it in that way. And there's a lot of bad faith arguments that happen about the media now and about oh, there's so much bias, there's an agenda, there's this, there's that. And yes, there are outlets that have agendas. Some of them are more open about it than others. And I mean, we all know this. It's I, Again, it's I don't know what is left to discuss on that particular topic. But yeah, I, I don't think you have to be like this person that doesn't even exist, like a person that's just completely objective, has no opinion about the thing that they're writing about or speaking on or whatever, like doesn't even make any sense. I don't even know if you'd want that. You need people that are passionate about whatever it is their beat is. That's why it's their beat. Like, I, I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, moving on from that to some of the comments I've seen in various places, online, in podcasts, about kind of the current environment in the media sphere and people not being comfortable expressing themselves fully or self-editing because they are in fear for their jobs. I mean, obviously, (laughs) if you look at some of the people that have been fired. I mean, you you can try to say people resigned and now they were fired over the past weekish or even going back. I mean, you we we've been having this discussion for ages about how people self-censor within the media in order to kind of go along to get along and I hate it. I hate it for them. It makes me sad and it makes me mad every time I see somebody say something like that or hear somebody say something like that, but I get it. Like, I get it. People have jobs. I mean, you you need to make money. You have rents to pay. You have babies. You need to buy food. You need to be able to, you know, pay your utility bills. Like, I get it. You need to keep your job. But it's just, it sucks that things are that toxic that, I mean, even like, like dumb shit, people feel the need to like whisper behind people's backs or have like slack channels and shit like that it's like what the hell man like what the hell it's it's weird like i don't like i don't even know 
who would want to go into media right now with things being the way they are and just having to squish yourself into this weird little box so that nobody like yells at you or tries to get you fired, which that that whole thing. Disagree with someone all you want, fine. Don't fuck with people's money. All right. Like I said, people got bills, people got spouses, people got kids. Don't fuck with people's money, all right? Don't get people fired. Like, that's just, stop. That's so childish and so immature. And eventually, eventually, and this is starting to happen now too, the mob comes for you too. Like, the day comes where all of a sudden, like, I just saw the the woman that started Wing, which is like this women's social club. It's like this, it's stupid. It's really fucking stupid. But apparently... She just wasn't intersectionally feminist enough, and so now she has to resign. Like, they'll, they'll come for you, too. Like, if you, you want to lean into this because you think it's going to save you, it's not going to save you. Like, the day will come for you, too. You will say, like, the wrong thing or not say a thing loudly enough or not be supportive enough, which that's the new thing now. It's like, it's not just enough to be supportive of, say, Black Lives Matter or of protesters, or of whatever the new topic du jour will be next week. It's not just enough to be like, yeah, I, I support them. You have to be like super demonstrative about it. Otherwise, you're doing it wrong. And it's like, if you have to put somebody in a position where they're supporting your cause out of fear and not out of genuine feeling and concern for your cause, then what have you accomplished? Like what? You didn't change that person's mind. They're not in it because their heart's in it or because it's genuinely what they feel. They're doing it to be demonstrative and to almost like act like they care more than they do, which that's, I don't know why you would want that in a movement. Like that's kind of like the people you don't want in your movement, people that just kind of do it because, oh, look, it's, it looks nice on Instagram and I, I get the tweets and I get I get likes and I, I get retweets and oh my gosh, look at all this. Like, that's, that's not really what you would want, I would think, but that is where we're at now. And it's so weird. It's like this compulsory sort of speech that you have to do in order to keep your job and Again, if this is sounding a little familiar, it's because you've actually studied history and you know under what conditions those sorts of situations occur, usually under authoritarian regimes where you have to go along to get along. You have to say certain things. You have to be performative in that way of supporting whatever it is you're expected to support in order to keep your livelihood and to well, I'll see in authoritarian regimes, keep your ass out of jail too. But in order to maintain your good social standing, and it's it's weird. I don't know why anybody would want that. It's just, ugh. It kind of, it's, I, I don't understand it in the way that like, when people do this, not compulsory, but do it just because, oh, this is, it's trendy to say Black Lives Matter, or it's, it's trendy to go to the protest, or it's, oh, look, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about qualified immunity now because everyone else is talking about qualified immunity. It's like, yeah, but do you really care? Like, are you really here for the cause or are you here because it looks good? Like, oh, anyway, 
Yeah, it just, it makes me sad. And it makes me mad for the people who feel like they have to live that way. Like, it's just, it's shitty, you know? Like, and I don't know how to fix it. But it just, like, it's it's that libertarian part of me that just, it, it sticks. It's just like this idea that you have, that you can't express yourself freely. Just, oh, God, especially for somebody like me who's a 1A absolutist and a free speech absolutist, that just kills me every time I hear somebody say that. It's like, no, like, can I just give you a hug or buy you a drink or do something to try to fix it? Because there's nothing else I can do for you right now. Yeah, but this is just and it's accelerating. It's accelerating at this bizarrely rapid rate lately. And I don't know where it ends. Like, it's just like, like watching this car, like it's going towards the cliff at like 90. And it's like, what, are you going to stop before you go off the cliff? Or are we going off the cliff? What are we doing? Like, oh my God, what, where is this going to end? And it's probably going to end in a very fiery crash with a huge fire and probably also various another assorted dumpster fires adjacent to the very large fire. So anyway, moving on to kind of to pick up that point that I was talking about earlier on kind of what what media is becoming popular lately and what isn't and how I don't quite understand how legacy outlets aren't understanding this. And to make this point, I'm going to use Joe Rogan as an example. And I know I haven't talked about the Joe Rogan deal yet because I was trying to figure out a time to talk about it. And then this came up and I'm like, well, this is actually a really good example of how some outlets or at least some platforms are starting to pivot in a way. Um, I'm sure everybody knows about Joe Rogan's Spotify deal at this point. Um, Depending on how the numbers shake out, because from what I'm able to understand, this is still going to be like advertiser revenue based, but we're talking... Joe Rogan's deal is going to be anywhere in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Like, I'm I'm sure he was the highest paid podcaster probably before he signed the deal. Now I'm sure he is the highest paid podcaster in the game, which, hey, all props to him. He's been doing it for over a decade. He's got a massive audience. But here's my thing about Rogan. And I've, I've, I've I've always found him to be kind of an enigma because if I describe to you what Joe Rogan's podcast is, just on paper, you would be like, how does this dude even get thousands of downloads a month, let alone like 190 million downloads a month? And that is just Joe Rogan gets on mic with somebody, just picks people and everybody wants to go on there now because it's Joe Rogan and it's like the massivest platform ever. But he just sits there and talks to people for hours on end. Sometimes he gets high, sometimes he doesn't. But it's just Joe Rogan, normal ass dude who doesn't have like any kind of degrees or expertise or anything. And I don't say that to like knock the man or anything. I point that out because people tell me that that's part of the appeal of Joe Rogan is that he's just some dude just sitting on a mic talking to people for hours on end. And I'll admit that I'm not like a massive Rogan fan just because in order for me to like sit through a three hour plus podcast, I have to really, really, really like the person on the cast. And I just, I'm, 
I don't know. I, there's just I, I'm very rarely ever that interested in anybody that Joe Rogan has on his podcast to actually sit the way full Joe Rogan podcast. Entirely a me thing. I know there's lots, obviously, obviously lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people who feel differently. And so now he has this massive Spotify deal. And I, I bring that up because I was I was thinking about this when I was listening to the last fifth column podcast with Barry Weiss, and they were talking about Joe Rogan. And like I said, I've always found him to be like it, it, his success kind of confuses me because there's really nothing to it exactly. Like I said, it's just a guy just shooting the shit with people for like hours on end and literally tens of millions of people listen to this. Like I, like I, I don't, I don't understand like how he became so popular, but here we are. But to the point of kind of trying to figure out in that particular conversation, why outlets haven't produced another Rogan, like and it's not that it's been tried and failed. It just seems like nobody's actually tried to have their own Joe Rogan. And so it's like, okay, you have this model that you're pursuing now, especially in print slash digital media, that is hemorrhaging money, just bleeding money everywhere. Last year was a bloodbath for journalism. But you have this other model over here that is making a ton of money producing content that perhaps, I mean, people consider Joe Rogan controversial. If you think Joe Rogan's controversial, I have some people I would like to introduce you to (laughs) because it's just, it's not controversial at all, but apparently it's too controversial for anybody else to try to do what he does, even though it makes a absolute shit ton of money. I mean, I'm sure even before the Spotify deal with just his advertising and everything that he was pulling down millions. Like, there's no way that dude wasn't making millions of dollars a year. And so why, if you if you know that there is an appetite for that particular kind of content, why other outlets don't pursue that sort of thing? If for nothing else than to chase the money. Like, if you know there's money in doing a certain thing, why aren't you doing it? And it's just, it's so bizarre to me. And it's weird that nobody else really, like, is it that bad that, like, nobody even wants to try to have their own, like, in-house Joe Rogan who just talks to who the hell ever, I mean? I, <laughs> like, is, is it that bad? Apparently it is. It's so bad that you'll completely reject having somebody on your platform and it's not just Joe Rogan. There's plenty of other podcasts who cater to people who want more heterodox opinions or people who want more of a long-formed, nuanced conversation sort of platform with people. And they're making money. Like, people are paying money for this content. Like, obviously, the, the market is there enough for people to come up off their own money to listen to various podcasts and to donate to Patreons or Substacks or whatever anybody has now. That like, here's here's the model going forward. Here's what's making money. What you're doing is not making money. This over here is making money. So why wouldn't you be doing that? 
And and the only thing I can figure is that it's considered so controversial to have certain ideas and stuff on your platform, kind of going back to where I started here originally, that publishers are willing to forego millions of dollars in ad revenue that they could be making right now to not have that content on their platform. I, I, what? <laughs> what, are, what is, and I wonder when that's going to stop because, I mean, like I pointed out, journalism is a business. These, these outlets need to make money. And I think that that is ultimately going to be the thing that puts an end to this weird bullshit moment that we're in right now where you have employees wanting to make the decisions for editors and for publishers about what should and should not be on the platform is that, you know what, guys, we need to make money. So we are going to put on the platform whatever the thing is that makes us the money. Otherwise, we're going to go broke and you're all not going to have a fucking job. And then what? Like, ultimately, I think it's going to come down to money. And or, and this is my personal preference, although having it all come down to money is perfectly fine by me too. I am a capitalist after all. Is that eventually people are going to become reacquainted with the second digit on their hand and the proper usage of said digit. Eventually, people are going to get sick of your shit. And people are going to be like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. Like, this is fucking absurd. We're not firing somebody because they greenlighted a piece you don't like. Like, this is just stupid. This is stupid and dumb. And we're not firing people over stupid tweets from 10 years ago. And we're not firing people because you don't like them or because you wanted to talk a whole bunch of shit about them in a Slack channel or this, that or the other. Like, you know what? Suck it up. Suck it up, buttercup. One day when you're editor or you're the publisher, you get to make these decisions. But until then, shut up. Shut up and do your job. That's all you got to do. Like, you do not run this ship. No, no, no. You you don't run this. We run this. You can, you can dislike it all you want. You can dislike your way right out the door. But... It is not exactly a seller's market for journalistic talent nowadays, so you might want to be a little careful on that. But it's it's going to end eventually. When it's going to end, I don't know. How it's going to end, probably pretty nasty. But it's going to end because it can't go on like this. Like people, you you eventually you're just not going to have anybody who wants to work in media. Because who wants to go to work in, like, a shitty, toxic environment where, like, everybody's judging you? Like, nobody wants to do that. Eventually, people are going to either not go into media at all or they're going to do what so many other people have done is just go independent. Like, you either you start a podcast, you have your, your Substack emails, you start your Patreon, you do it that way. And you don't even bother with going through the old school mainstream media outlets. You just do it yourself. And then that way, nobody can say shit to you. Because what are you going to say? Like, what, what, you're going to go yell at my Patreons? Okay, fine, go yell at them. They're they're not going to care what you have to say. Clearly, they've already made their decision. So I can see a future where 
a lot of talent doesn't go into those mainstream publications anymore, but that's going to cause a certain level of fragmenting too and siloing because obviously if you're doing this for money, I mean, there's only so many people that can give you money. Like (laughs) people don't have like hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month to give to this podcaster and that podcaster and to subscribe to this sub stack and and this other one over here. And it's like, that's going to create a problem in and of itself too. But I don't really see any other way. I mean, it's just... I I don't see it. It just, as it stands right now, I mean, even if you do work for a mainstream publication, I would be considering getting some side money coming in just in case. Like, you might want to go ahead and start that sub stack. You might want to start sending out them emails. You might want to set up a Patreon just in case something happens and one day the mob comes for you. That way you're not, like, completely ass out with no money. Like, you still have a way to make money. But yeah, on that note, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up because like I said, this is long and rambly and discursive, but it was one I wanted to make because it's just, it's, it's such a weird, weird place we're in right now. Everything in this country is just in a weird ass place right now. And I don't know how it all ends. It's a little frightening to say that, that I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen from week to week anymore. <laughs> And that's, that's, eh. I think that contributes a lot to a lot that's going on too, because I think everybody's kind of tense and not sure of what is going on in the world or where we're going or what we're doing. And so I think that's also feeding into a lot of this sort of frenzy that we're having in the media right now and even in places outside the media, because people are just like, Everything's so tense. And so the littlest things become big things because you're already on edge. And so now you just blow things up because you're already like there mentally in the first place. And it's like, oh, I I don't know. This is going to be kind of a shitty summer. (laughs) That's an awful place to end this episode. But I really don't have anything else positive to say. So Like I said, I will go ahead and wrap this up. And if you did make it this far, thank you for listening as always. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.